Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important, and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hi, welcome to The Mentor List. Today we are catching up with Stuart Ellis. Stuart is the CEO of the Australian Fire and Emergency Service Authorities Council, otherwise known as AFAC. It's the National Council for Fire and Emergency Services across Australia and New Zealand, and the facilitator and custodian of contemporary knowledges and practices for the benefit of members and through them the community. There are 288 thousand volunteers and career staff engaged across AFAC. So Mr. Ellis is an experienced leader in the emergency management industry. Following a distinguished 22 career in the Australian Army, where he'll talk today at length, well not too much length, about jumping out of aeroplanes and I guess the contrast in that type of role as to, as to what he's doing today. So he's appointed CEO of the South Australian Country Fire Service for five years. In 2002, established a consultancy company and has been involved in over 20 operational reviews, including the Canberra Bushfires, the Victorian Bushfire Royal Commission and the Christchurch Earthquake. In 2012, he was appointed CEO of the, I was going to say it, but I'll say AFAC, the National Council for Fire and Emergency Services in Australia. He's passionate about improving the professional standing of fire and emergency personnel and has a focus on progressing an industry-wide integrated approach to emergency management. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Stuart Ellis. Okay, Stuart Ellis, welcome to The Mentor List. Thank you very much, David. Happy to be here. Uh, well, it's yeah, fantastic to have you in. And yeah, thanks to call out to Malcolm Jackman for the introduction. So just for those that may not be familiar with Stuart, do you want to share your story with the listeners? Yeah, thank you very much. I grew up on a farm on the Flurio Peninsula in South Australia. Went to school in Adelaide. My father died at, at 17, last year of school, and that had uh, probably more of an impact than I realised, but I'm happy to talk about that as we go along. Went straight from school to the Royal Military College at Duntroon, completed an arts degree there, majoring in history and politics, and then served in the Australian Army for 22 years. Was an infantry officer, but in fact spent most of my time with the Special Air Service um, based in Western Australia. And uh, then in 1996, switched from being in the military to being in with emergency services. There's a number of reasons for that. And so for the last 22 years, I've been with emergency services. So wow. at this stage, I'm sort of towards the end of my career, I guess, but half the time with the military and half the time with emergency services. It's funny, we've got you right on the balance. So you've got 22 in each. Yeah, Ten. pretty much. <laughs> so in fact, in, in that second half, I spent 10 of those years consulting at my own uh, consultancy company. But the focus of that was on operational leadership, which led to being involved with a range of uh, operational reviews into major emergency service events such as the bushfires in Canberra in 2003 or the 
bushfires in Victoria in 2009 or the Christchurch earthquake in 2011 and the operational response to that and, and how we might do those things better in the future. So my current role is CEO of what's referred to as AFAC, which is the National Council for Emergency Services. So all the fire and SES services around the country come together as a national council, and that national council is referred to as AFAC. It's an acronym for an almost impronounceable <laughs> title. It is. Because it, it was Australian Fire and Emergency Services Authority Council. Well, it's, yeah, I, yeah, I can see why you call it AFAC. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so AFAC sort of fills, it's actually, it's a unusual arrangement. It's actually a company, it's not government, but it's owned by the Fire and Emergency Services and it coordinates policy and doctrine and interstate and overseas resourcing for a Fire and Emergency Services. So emergency management is a state, not a federal responsibility, and so AFAC assists the states in coordinating um, foreign emergency services between the different states, territories, and indeed New Zealand. New Zealand's part of AFAC as well. Great. So, so you're looking at these events, I guess, after the fact. And yeah, do you want to maybe talk through, I guess, the process of dissecting, I guess, what's happened, what you're looking for, and I guess what the end outcome is? Is there recommendations flying out? Maybe we could sort of dig into that a, a little. Yeah, so I think, and it just probably relates, could relate back to many things in life, but when those major events occur, I think what's most important is to focus in on, on the facts, make sure we've got the facts straight, because often that's, uh, you know, it, it takes time to distill those. And if I reflect over this very briefly on that, you know, this recent incident with Australian cricket in, in South Africa, which has played out, then he received a fair bit of criticism for it, the CEO of Australian cricket, but he wanted to confirm the facts before taking action. And I think that's not an unreasonable approach. So part of these inquiries is, is around confirming the facts. What we try and focus on when we do these reviews is the learnings rather than the blame. But without being unkind to the legal profession, once lawyers become involved, mm -hmm. they're almost trained to look for who's at fault. Yep. And so as soon as people start pursuing um, who's to blame, then they clam up. So short of a um, royal commission or a coronial inquiry, which are very formal reviews, yep. if we're able to do something less than that, then getting people to share their experience at the time and why they made the decisions they did, which you know, in the vast majority of the cases, people do the best job they can with the available information at the time. Mm. And there is a real danger when we look at it weeks or months ahead with all the available information that it's it may not have been the best decision, but there are some um, very good learnings that can come out of that. So those reviews seek to identify those learnings. Inevitably, there's even though these are um, natural events, these fires or floods or earthquakes, people so often look for blame. And I think people do need to be held accountable, particularly people in, in public positions. There's no question about that. But at the same time, in the vast majority of situations, probably the same in life, everyone carries a degree of responsibility. And you know, in today's world, there's a lot of information available around 
emergencies and what the public should be doing and how they should be kept informed and how they can seek information. So there's a degree of responsibility at a number of levels. It's not just uh, being reliant on government or the emergency services. And I think sometimes we're one of the most urbanised countries in the world, so we've lost some of that. Now we've become very reliant on on government to fix our problems. And we're putting a lot of effort now into trying to make communities more resilient. And that's a mindset, but it's also taking practical steps. Yeah. So so maybe we could just sort of jump back. We sort of skipped over 22 years in the military and maybe we could talk through some of the highlights there and, you know, looking back on your your time, how has that served you, I guess, coming out of that area and then, I guess, into into business or into emergency services? So maybe we could talk about that. That sounds like a bit of a turning point. And I guess if we look back now, it's directly halfway with 22 years each side. So maybe we could just jump back there and... Yeah, you could share a few insights from, from your time there. Sure. Look, I, I don't consider myself a sort of diehard military person. Perhaps others may do. When I was at school, it was when we still used to have cadets, and so I, I was a cadet. I enjoyed um, the activities that, that the military was doing at the time, and so it was quite a natural um, progression for me to go into uh, defence. It's certainly in... For infantry, foot soldiers, it's it's very much to do with people, and and I discovered that that was my interest in particular, working with people. So that that uh, worked very naturally, and I was originally posted to Townsville. So you know, I mean, I think in any roles in the military, you get to see certainly good part of Australia because they move you around, but also yeah. um, for myself overseas as well. Um, Applying to go to the SAS, I didn't really even think of that as a goal. It was, I think, motivated by wanting to be as best I could, Mm -hmm. and that was an avenue to do that. And it also kept me operational, if you like, doing the work of of an infantryman longer by taking that step. So the SAS, so just just for those that maybe aren't familiar with the hierarchy or the difference, right? So, um, so, so, so the SAS is is part of Australia's special forces, and they tend to operate behind enemy lines rather than as part of a main force of a military operation. But in the, in, in these current times, they're also, um, I mean, they're operationally very active. They're trained as specialists, specialists in insertion or in, in how you get into places, but also with various specialist skills in operations as well. I went to a free fall troop, which is free fall parachuting troop, that in fact I was very naive when I finished the selection course, the commanding officer spoke to me and said, what area would you like to operate in? And I said, well, sir, I get seasick, so I don't want to do water operations and I'm scared of heights. I don't want to do free fall parachuting. I'd be happy to operate in vehicles. They had sort of Land yeah. Rovers operating at the time. And quick as a flash, he said, Ellis, so you're scared of heights, you're going to free falling. <laughs> so, uh, right. yeah, they sort of uh, focus on making sure you can overcome some of your. So, what is the parachuting troop? Is this, so you're, is this how you're getting into places? This parachute? is how you're getting into places. Okay. So, you do a whole lot of training in, in free fall parachuting, which a lot of people do as a leisure activity. But when you do it with the military, you do it with a heavy pack, you do it at night, 
when you're doing it at, at you know, at extreme heights, you're doing it with oxygen. So it's not a, uh, it's not a pleasant activity. It's a, it's a pretty hard physical activity. But it's, yeah, I think my time with the SAS, what I l- learned out of that is if you can focus on the basics and I had a phrase, um, you know, be brilliant at the basics, which I think you can apply probably to any profession. In that SAS context, if you focus on your fitness and your navigation and your decision-making, because I was an officer, giving orders, if you're able to practice and ensure you're very competent in those things, then the more demanding tasks or the specific mission or operation you were given, you could focus all your effort on that rather than on just doing the basic things, which you need to make sure, whatever they are in life, yeah, you do those really well. So, you know, in the broadest context, whether it's being punctual or reliable or trustworthy or communicating well, um, writing well, all those things, I think we need to master those type of skills as early as we can. And we probably underestimate, I think, the power of the voice would be my um, view. I think yeah. we can, you know, a lot of us spend time focusing on some of those other skills, but actually how, how we speak and how we present can do a huge amount from the perspective of uh, how people perceive you, yeah. um, the confidence they might have in you, um, how you can influence other people. So that's something I would, I would really encourage people to focus on. Because I guess, you know, these, when you're talking about, you know, giving a direct order or and being under extreme circumstances with, you know, external factors that are, um, you know, I couldn't even imagine parachuting in somewhere and then you're landing and you're giving orders. I guess, you know, contrasting that back to now being in emergency services, which is a similar sort of, you need that very directive response. Um, so I, I don't know whether that's a question or just an observation, but yeah, is that something that you developed or um, is this something that you had to work at? Um, and how do you find it's, it works, you know, when there's not an emergency, you're switching your styles because, you know, you're coming across as very, not relaxed, but very calm. I'm getting this very calm presence and I'm thinking, okay, so he's, and the, the, then I'm also pitching you jumping out of planes and into these <laughs> behind enemy lines and then also directing, you know, efforts around bushfires in real time sort of response. So maybe we can talk about how you have so much calmness or... <laughs> well, uh- I recall someone saying to me in the military, Ellis, don't run, it scares the troops. And I think that's probably true. I, I think the, the analogy of the duck on the water or whatever, particularly if you're in a leadership role, then, I mean, you want to convey your enthusiasm or passion or priority for mm. for a task. But sure as eggs, I think if you're a bit panicked, then people will pick up on that. I'm very convinced that... Uh, it, in the military, we every six months, in fact, but every year there was an assessment, and your superior officer would would provide you with a written and a verbal assessment. But I had the view then, and I still have the view long after the military, that it's actually those people that work to you that actually know you best, and you know your bosses will task you with completing outcomes or particular activities and judge you on how successful you are on that. 
but it's the people you work with or the people in particular who work to you that are going to actually really know how you do that yeah. and how effective you are. And so that's always something to reflect on. I think it's it's actually those your team members who, who actually really know how you operate and you can't hide much from them, particularly when you're under pressure because that, that comes through pretty well. So to answer your question, I, I think a lot of it's practice. Some of it's just uh, how you made up, I think. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I guess I had another question around, so now I guess looping back to the, the second 22 years, and I know you're sort of involved in emergency service type training also, and it's an area which you know, corporate Australia or corporates in general are quite interested in this scenario plan, planning and playing. And I guess scenario planning that's now flowing into corporates does have military origin scenario planning in, in its at its origin. So, mate, if you wanted to elaborate, I guess on those concepts a bit further, and I guess you know, I guess from a listener listening in, it'd be great to sort of understand the fundamentals of how we prepare for a, an emergency, or sort of what you look for and what you train on. Look, I think we try and focus on on the worst case because I think the. From an emergency service perspective, we try and focus on the worst case, which, and we do that because we feel the public expects that of us. If you take something like the 2009 bushfires in Victoria, when there were you know, literally hundreds of fires operating at once, that actually was beyond any scenario that we had anticipated. So nature can always go further than your imagination, if you like, right. and you need to be mindful of that. But, yeah, we try and identify a worst-case scenario, uh, one that's um, going to challenge us, and that normally involves coordinating a range of resources because we tend to find that one agency or one group can generally operate pretty well, but when they have to work in a coordinated way with a range of other resources, then that's where some of the challenges come in. Mm. So that uh, interplay between different resources, I think, is a very important element. And also identifying actually what you want to achieve. If our overall goal is safety of the community, and we took a bushfire scenario, for example, the immediate response may well be, if the scenario is there's a fire in the landscape, that we focus on trying to put out the fire. But in actual fact, if our overall goal is safety of the community, actually what we may be needing to focus on is protecting the town and letting the fire take its course or moving people out of harm's way in the first instance. So there is, in that scenario planning, we try and identify what's our overall outcome that we're wanting to achieve. And it's not necessarily the opera, you know, the, the standard operational response of of responding to a fire or focusing on the actual event. It may be on other actions which are going to be the best thing for the community overall. Fantastic. No, thank you again for for sharing. I, I guess is there any habits that I guess have helped you in preparing you for? I guess, you know, switching on or or even switching off to some degree. Yeah. So I always enjoy. I say enjoy. I think I do enjoy starting early in the day. Um, so I've always got to the office between 7 and 7.30, that mm-hmm. that sort of time, because I think it's uh, it gives you a little bit of a head start, perhaps mentally as well as in reality to other members in the workplace. 
And particularly, I think if you're the leader, then that's pretty valuable. I always try and exercise. I think that's just a good thing to do. And I think you know, we perform better if we can exercise. And we, can, you know, people, a lot of people say they haven't got the time or the opportunity, but you can always park away from your work or mm. get off a bus earlier or a train earlier to do that. So I think they, those things are very useful. When I was the commanding officer at Duntroon, I had an approach by a group called Covey, which is Steve, uh, Stephen Covey. I'll refer to him later on. Uh, he wrote a book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and they said, oh, we think we've got a program we could assist you. And at the time I said, uh, look, we're the Royal Military College here. We're the sort of <laughs> the essence of Australian military leadership. We don't need any other you know, yeah. assistance. But anyway, against... Yeah, under some duress, I got some staff together on a weekend and we completed the program. And, and look, it was a good program. Yeah. One of the key things that came out of that program was, and it's something we do a lot in the military, but not at a personal level, was write a mission statement. Right. And a so, one. a personal mission statement. And I did that 20 you know, something years ago. I still got it, got it. And I found it very valuable. And it sort of identifies you know, what your roles are. Um, as an individual, and so for me, you know, it's husband, you know, father, my work role, whatever that may be. It was obviously very yep. different twenty something years ago. My family role, you know, my role as a friend, the role faith has for me, and I'm also a Rotarian. And so I'd sort of tried to pull apart what actually motivates me and what where I feel I've gotten or I want to have an obligation. Yeah. And if you can, if you can work that out, and I guess link that also to you know what are your values? You know, people talk about values a lot, but I do think until you write those things down, David, you don't actually commit yourself. Right. Yeah. You know, if you think of any important thing in life, whether it's an insurance policy or a contract or a marriage certificate, it's something in writing. Yeah. And I think there is a huge amount of value in making the effort to actually write that down. Because it it forces you to think about it, and you commit to something, and then when you reflect on that, and that you know, my mission statement's I don't know a couple hundred words. It's sort of oh wow, up. okay, so it's not a one liner. It's not a one liner. Wow. It's a bit of a comment in each of those role areas. Yes, yeah, so it's not just a phrase or a or a comment. I want to be the best I can because I think it does vary in those different activities, and indeed, you know, why I made that switch from the military to another area was because my wife and family said, you know, you're spending a huge amount of time away. Mm. And if you're saying your family and your wife's really important to you, how do you reconcile that with spending a lot of time away? Yeah. And I found that, yeah, that was a tough question because I loved the work I was doing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got to balance out those priorities and having written them down was really helpful to reflect on that yeah, because yeah, you yeah. can't get away from it. Yeah. I guess you can change it. And I think it does change, but it hasn't changed that much. You know, some of those roles have changed a little, but actually overall you've got a pathway for living and I think that's really, really valuable. And so that is a habit I think is, a, is particularly um, important. I think also perhaps, um, I mean, we, we put a lot of effort into competence, but I think competence is a bit like, what you see in an iceberg above the surface and character is actually what's below the surface. And we, you know, I'll encourage people to 
develop their character more so than their competence because really it's the character of the person. You can train people to do different things, but the character doesn't change much once it's developed. And you know, identifying you know your values and what's important to you, your roles in life, and you know they're going to evolve as you with a partner or get married or have children or change jobs perhaps. But yeah. but the character part doesn't change very much, and so that's a really good thing to be able to focus on. What is the real me, and and how can I grow that, and and how do I display that to to other people? And I think also there's – I've worn red socks, um, David, for over <laughs> 20 years, and I have lots of red socks. It saves my mother thinking about what she wants to give me for Christmas because she just gives me red socks. <laughs> but and that was linked to a story. Peter Blake, who was uh, a New Zealand yachtsman, who actually – I think he took the America's Cup off us after we had won it Got for it. the first time. Yep. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but when he was a captain of the yacht and they won their first – race he came back to shore and he was wearing red socks that his mother had knitted to walk around the yacht i'm not a yachty but you know you don't want to mark the yacht and so on and that was his mother's red socks and he he threw out this challenge that if you you know in new zealand if you think this this campaign's worth supporting then go and buy new zealand wool red socks yeah so he ended up selling more red socks than they have people Right. Go figure about that. <laughs> and uh, we'll put it on sheep or something. But <laughs> but the message I take away from it, and I still refer to it when I sit in a plane and fold my legs and someone says, oh, you're wearing red socks, and I tell them the story, is if Peter Blake, who became Sir Peter Blake, he was mm. he was shot dead in the Amazon by some robbers on his yacht. But if he could influence a whole country by just wearing red socks, then what can we do to in- inspire the people that we work with? And, you know, it may be wearing something. It may have nothing to do with that. It may just be identifying a project or undertaking a particular task or an approach. Mm. But we can all do something to inspire the people we work with. But, we, you know, we, we, we need to think about it and put some effort into identifying that and, and living that out because uh, people like being inspired. And if you're the leader, they expect you to to you know, give them really clear guidance. We're not always going to be as inspirational as great orators or or perhaps political leaders, but we can do our part. And I think it's too easy just to back away from that and say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not that person. So I think that's a good habit as well is identify things that, that we I can, can inspire. I can see you've got red socks on today. I have. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a pretty easy <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, it, it certainly is the smaller things that can create these huge ripples. Rosa Parks, you know, not getting moving to the back of the bus in Central America was, was a great example of that as well. Yeah, so I, I guess just moving along to sort of, sort of some habits. Oh, sorry, habits we've just covered. <laughs> moving into sort of some advice. Is there any advice that you received or wish you received that you could sort of share with the listenership yeah look i think i'll go back to that values identifying your values which you know sounds i think it can sound to people a bit esoteric or a bit philosophical but i think it is it, it is really important so i would encourage people to do that write it down as part of your, your mission statement i'm a practical person so i think 80 percent delivered is better than 95 percent delayed you know i think you've got a Get something done as best you can within the time available, and you can always do it better. 
You don't want to be slipshod about it, but I think we can fall in the trap of trying to do things too well, and that can distract our delivery. Yeah, so I think that issue around reviewing, I, I, reviewing how we went on things, not. Yeah. I've got a sort of a philosophy that uh, if we use the analogy of driving, you know, it's important to look in the rear view mirror, but you don't want to stare at it because you'll crash. Yeah, right. But spending a bit of time looking in the rear view mirror, I think, is important because we can always do things better. Yeah. If we don't do that, then we're not going to improve. And yeah, so I think that's a good thing to do as well. And um, I think you got to it before with seven seven habits of highly effective people. I think it was. Was that the book that you were going to recommend? And look, that would be. In fact, one of those habits which I really like is, and this is Stephen Covey, is seek first to understand, then be understood. Because in, in so many times in in work or in personal life, we want to put our view forward when we're arguing a point. And I think if we can have the humility of listening to the other person's point of view first and then framing your view, you can actually do it better and in, in a more informed way. Um, that would be one book I would recommend. It's pretty old now. It's, you know, I don't want to particularly promote that, but I thought it was very insightful. But I think Albert Facey's A Fortunate Life would be another one. It's a very Australian story. It's a, a true story and it you know, we're in a pretty fortunate country and we live in a pretty fortunate time. And I think mm. uh, reflecting on hardships in the past, put things in context a bit. And that's it's a book which I think was a great story and, a, and an easy read. Fantastic. Uh, thank you very much for sharing. So uh, the, the quote, seek first to understand and then be understood. This, this is quite interesting. I imagine this would give, give you a lot of miles in the relationship areas as well, not just, I guess, business. And- yeah, no, look, look, I think it does. I, I think you can fall into danger sometimes of people saying, well, come on, Ellis, what do you think? Because you're sort of probing the other person for, for their perspective and it's important that you give that. But I think humility is underrated and that quote doesn't mean you need to be humble, but I think you need to be considered and to launch with your views up front. I mean, some people do that very well. I I don't have the confidence to do that, and I'm, I feel a lot more comfortable um, trying to get an understanding of the operating environment, if you like, and what the person's thinking before launching in with my view of the world, which may be quite different, and I'm happy to give that, but I prefer to understand where the other person's coming from in the first instance. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, yeah, I, I wanted to thank you in. Thank you for taking the time to come in today. Um, yeah, really appreciate it and sharing. I guess, yeah, what are we? Oh, we're on forty-four years worth of experience around two areas which are which are fairly different. And I guess it's interesting to see the pivot point and just how much you know the habits and advice of um, knowing your values and, and etc. has played in you know that in your own personal journey. And it's interesting to see that that's sort of what you recommend. Just before we do sign off, and I, I just couldn't not take the opportunity. There's this fight or flight sort of phenomenon which you know we all get struck with in in some time of of an emergency or just knowing that you've reviewed so many large real emergencies. You know, how are the is there something you can share or some wisdom you can impart with you know us the individuals where we're having our own emergencies, whether they're um, in our own minds or whether they're real. Is there something that it just do this first? Is there a, is there a pearl of wisdom you can share, or is that simplifying it way too much? Well, it probably does depend a lot on the circumstances. I think taking a deep breath 
is always a good first step, but having a plan. And you know, in most most of those circumstances or most of those crises, um, David, whether it's in life or you know, in these natural disasters, if you've thought about it beforehand, mm-hmm. if you've got a bit of a plan, I mean, the plan's never going to survive, you know, the next thing that happens. It's always going to going to change. But I think having a plan, one, gives you a degree of confidence because you've thought about it, but also allows you to map out an approach in the cool of the day, if you like. So whether it's a, a hard discussion with a colleague or in a relationship or, um, you know, trying to achieve a financial goal or, yeah, I think a lot of things in life, mapping out a plan or thinking about what you want to do before you do it because we we do all create things twice. Well, we should. We think about them. That's the first time we create it and then we do it. And if you can do it twice like that, think about it first and then do it and it's not half a second between the two, Yeah. then generally I think the outcome's much improved. Mm. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. And yeah, sorry to put you on the spot and obviously it depends on the circumstance. Yeah, so thanks again for coming in today. And just for those that are, you know, how would they stay attuned or how would they find out more about how to better prepare themselves, whether they're here in Australia or just in general? Um, So how would they find out about more about AFAC or emergency responses um, generally? Look, every emergency service has their own website in the different states and territories, which are have material orientated around the natural disasters that they face. So in Queensland, it's more around cyclones and floods, which they're experiencing right now, uh, whereas in southeastern Australia, it's more around bushfires. So yeah. the different emergency services websites is one source. And there's another source, the Australian Disaster Resilience Institute, ADA, as it's referred to, A-D-R-I. That has a lot of material on um, disaster, community resilience, and how we prepare for that. Um, so that would be a, a website I would encourage people to yeah. to visit as well. Fantastic. So I'll throw the links up on thementorlist.com. But, yeah, thank you again for your time today and really appreciate you taking the time out. And I can see that your phone's not beeping, so I hope we haven't had an emergency that we're, we're holding you from. But, yeah, thanks for everyone else. Tune in again next week for another great show. Thanks, Stuart. David, thanks very much. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List.